I hope that you're still there in Philippians chapter 4. We've been stepping through this uh, particular letter for several weeks now. This is part number 14. We're nearing the end. We are in the, uh, in the final chapter of Paul's little letter here to this beloved church. And there will be a couple more sermons out of this, out of this last chapter uh, before we close out this particular study. Uh, although, I think verse 13 uh, might give it a run for its money. I think verse 4 is one of the most <laughs> quotable verses in the entire Bible, especially in this letter. Uh, verse 13, of course, is the infamous verse that's quoted by many athletes and uh, other people of like, uh, of like occupation. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, which, of course, we'll get to in a couple of weeks. I think it's also not only one of the most popular verses, but I think one of the most taken out of context verses. But regardless, uh, I, given a run for its money is verse 4, rejoice in the Lord all the way. And again, I say rejoice. It's a quotable verse. It's a verse that kind of rolls off the tongue. We don't have to really think about kind of what it's talking about. Oftentimes when we say it, when we quote it, we can recite it almost without even thinking. But I think, though, we ought to pause and consider this verse in its context. Because sometimes I think we can quote verse 4, and we can quote it and almost make it not the gift that it is. We can say to others, and we can kind of almost suggest that you have to be rejoicing or else, almost. But considering Paul's letter, considering everything that we've been studying up to this point, I think that it's worth pausing and trying to consider what Paul is using this particular uh, verse, or I should say this particular reminder in this particular spot. Again, I think there's a lot of meaning in this verse, verse number four, rejoicing in the Lord always, but I think that it actually has a lot more practical meaning, especially to those that he is addressing. He speaks, as we noted several weeks ago, Paul speaks about church unity and the concept of togetherness and fellowship, we might say, within the church um, back in chapter 2 in the opening couple verses. I'm just going to read those to refresh you. But Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, if there be any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." That, of course, is sort of the opening salvo, we might say, to the long chapter in which he talks about unity, and especially unity through humility. And we looked at how that humility is to be evidenced in those who are called the church of God, those who are the called out uh, saints that Christ has redeemed. Here, though, in chapter 4, he brings to bear some of those same concepts. The, uh, the, the, the encouragement to being like-minded, the encouragement to having the same love, and so forth. He brings those, those sort of theoretical concepts and truths and doctrines into a very real situation that had very real conflict. Of course, back in chapter 4, verse number 2, he uh, says, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche... That they be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Notice that repeated phrase, same mind. He is encouraging them to recognize their union in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to contemplate this particular chapter, especially this particular conflict that exists between Eodius and Syntyche, because we're never told what these two women are bickering about. Uh, He never goes into a long extended discussion about the reasons why they are having this conflict and the reasons why it's important for him to address it. In fact, Even though it's clear that there was contention between them, perhaps we don't know what stage of that contention they were in. But Paul is moved by his love for this church and he's moved by the gospel that he so dearly wants to uphold and advance as he's talked about elsewhere. He's moved by both of those motives to almost suppress Whatever conflict and whatever level of quarrel that is between these two women, he wants to put an end to their dispute before it gets infected we might say before it festers and you can see almost the urgency with which he addresses whatever is between them i beseech euodius and beseech syntyche that they be of the same mind in the lord i think before we proceed i think there's something to that for all of us here tonight that Something that I think we ought to take to heart, that we ought to keep in our minds, is just that how often are we guilty of letting things slide, so to speak, before we deal with them in the moment? We let things perhaps fester. We let things that are between us and another brother, us and another sister in Christ, get to a place in which it's hard to reconcile, hard to repair. I would say dissension disagreement that's left alone always leads to disaster and I think that's why Paul is here being very adamant about the fact of yes calling out these two women in this inspired letter of the Holy Spirit again think about that fact alone (laughs) Paul names names he calls out two women in this letter that is yes and was perhaps being read by Epaphroditus to the whole church at large I always think about that when I come to this particular text. Think about the fact that as was the tradition in those particular churches, these apostolic letters would serve as public readings for the whole church for their encouragement. And most likely it was Epaphroditus, the one whom Paul talks about, uh, that we talked about uh, in the last couple chapters, who was uh, ministering to Paul and who he was sending back with this letter for their encouragement after they had heard about his sickness, his sickness that brought him to the point of death. And as Epaphroditus is reading, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about the Christ, he's talking about the unity that this church can have. And imagine the encouragement, imagine the enthusiasm of all of these church members here at Philippi as Paul reflects on how this church was formed, as they perhaps too have their minds brought back to Acts chapter 16 and the, and the, and the incredible way in which this church was founded. And yet... <laughs> The honor of having your name recorded in an apostolic letter quickly fades into perhaps horror as it became clear as to why he was calling you out. As it became clear as to why he's naming names. This shock of Epaphroditus saying, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. As we noted a couple weeks ago, it's uh, in, at the end of chapter 2. Let me just uh, find the verse there. Uh, yeah, it's chapter 2, verse 25. 
Paul writes about how he supposed it was necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion and labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. And that he ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness. Because that he had heard that he had been sick. This heaviness, of course, is, is because of Epaphroditus' health. But it's interesting to note Epaphroditus' longing for the church. Perhaps he had been aware of this growing and mounting dissension between these two ladies. And he shares this burden to Paul. Enough so that he calls them out here in this chapter. But I think he does something important. This beseeching of both of these ladies here at the beginning of this chapter. As he doesn't single one of them out over the other. Again notice he says. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Beseech is a very strong word. A very strong word which means to literally beg and implore. To call you out and call you to attention. Essentially, we could translate Paul's words, I'm begging both of you, (laughs) agree on something, (laughs) agree on something between yourselves, which I think was purposeful of Paul. He's not wanting to ascribe blame to one individual over the other. He's not wanting to, quote unquote, pick a side. And in fact, that's exactly what he does here. He doesn't pick sides. In fact, he, I think he, uh, the way he phrases this calling out of both of them is, the, is so that both of them could not relish in the fact that they were right. None of them could go to the other, ha, I told you so. They couldn't go to the other party and say, look at what Paul said about my case. <laughs> look at what he said about my point of view. In fact, Paul's just basically saying, you're both wrong. You're both at fault. You're both destroying the unity that ought to be between those who are in the church. This unknown conflict between these two ladies, I think, is one of the most important details as Paul begins chapter 4. It's an important detail for its omission. Because whatever their issue was, whatever was between these two ladies, whatever beef they had... If it was something of great significance, of great eternal importance, I do believe it would have been mentioned. Maybe I'm just surmising, maybe I'm just using conjecture, and maybe that's not wise, but I think in this particular case it is. Whatever their disagreement was, it wasn't important enough to Paul for Paul to spend lengthy amounts of dialogue dissecting it. Think about that in contrast to the letters to the Corinthian church. Whatever was dividing that church, which we clearly know from 1 Corinthians 5 and so forth. It was great of great mounting significance enough for Paul to spend two letters trying to bring that church back into fellowship. There was great conflict there. Great uh, dissension between brothers and sisters in Christ because of the scandal that was basically ruining the fellowship within that church body. Again, this is not like Corinth. Again, notice how Paul begins this chapter in which he's going to call out two ladies to reconcile. Notice verse number one. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. You cannot escape what Paul is trying to, in, uh, to uh, how he's trying to encourage this church body. 
these brothers and sisters that he considers fellow laborers for the gospel. Over and over again throughout this letter, he has called them dearly beloved. And here in verse 1, in one single verse, he calls them that twice. They are his joy, they are his crown, they are his most precious church plant, we might say. And you can sense Paul's heart. As we have noted elsewhere in this chapter, you can sense the heart of Paul. is for the furtherance of the gospel through this little church and their ministry that they have. And here he sees these two ladies perhaps having a squabble over some such thing that has blown out of proportion. Perhaps it has gotten a little bit too big. (laughs) It's spread around a little bit too much. And Paul is here begging both of them, I implore you, see and find your agreement in the Lord. Again, Paul's affection for this church are on display here. And how he deals with this conflict. You can almost sense that he's their brother in Christ coming alongside them almost saying, come on guys. Agree on what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, rather than belabor or prolong what was perhaps divided them, rather he seeks to end their disagreement by reminding them what they can agree on. And notice how, again, notice verse 2. I beseech, I beg Euodias, and I beg Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord alway. And again I say, rejoice. You see, he encourages them and he points them to something other than what they were disagreeing on. He points them to something else, something truer, something more concrete, something more eternal. Indeed, whatever they were disagreeing on, it was a trivial matter in light of what Paul wanted to remind them of. Or in light of what the ministry that they had in front of them. Their joy and their fellowship, again, as Paul has been noting, it doesn't come about because of circumstances. It doesn't come about because of whatever present situation was in front of them. The joy of the Christian church is not found in its present condition. It's found in a person whose name is Jesus. And likewise here too, these who were so adamant about their side being right, they found their joy in the fact that they were right and the other was wrong. And instead Paul wants them to see, no, your joy is not found in your rightness. It's found in your Christ. And he reminds them that your joy, as he says, is in the Lord. He wants them to see that their fellowship could be found in something outside of them that was present for them. This joy that was in Christ and what they disagreed on was not as important as what they could agree on. And again, I don't think Paul's making light of their conflict. I don't think he's making light of their contention. He's not trying to... uh, Make it as seem as though whatever they were disagreeing on was not of some great significance. But I think neither is he saying also here that, they, that when he says and encourages them to have the same mind in the Lord. He's not, he's not trying to suggest that they have to think the same way in every single thing all the time. He's not advocating for some sort of group think. Actually, I think what Paul is here reminding them, he's, he's shepherding these two ladies. And likewise, by proxy, he's shepherding this church. And I would say he's shepherding us as well. 
He's reminding them as this good under-shepherd Paul is here doing to keep their minds focused on eternal things. It's sort of what he would remind the church at Colossae. Set your minds on things above. Again, let me read that verse to you in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 verse 2 or verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. Again, in much the same way, Paul is reminding them. Seek and find your joy in something other than just your rightness and you being correct about some silly matter. And here, despite their divergent opinions on whatever such thing that they were arguing over, he reminds them that their reconciliation, their, 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 their great reminder of peace and joy and fellowship is in Christ alone. Again, notice that phrase that's repeated. Verse number two, same mind in the Lord. And notice verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. That phrase is indicative of the union that we ought to have as church members, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's repeated in verse 1. It's repeated all throughout this letter and actually all throughout all of the apostolic letters of the Apostle Paul. These, this reminder of the fact that by faith you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not To varying degrees, but by faith you are united to the same risen Lord. Sometimes I think we forget that. As brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, we can forget that we have the same Jesus that unites us. And whatever disagreement that we have with other brothers and sisters can come about when we think that our way is the only option. It's hard not to think that at times, I will confess. It's my way or the highway, we can say. Be like me, because obviously I've got this figured out. (laughs) Paul is saying that such language comes from those who think that they're in authority. And can then you see how this might offend Christ? This little squabble wasn't just a little squabble. It was indicative of a heart that needed reconciliation because by saying that they were right and the other person was wrong, they were usurping authority away from Christ alone. When we're demanding to get our own way, that's exactly what we're doing. When we're demanding that we are the ones who are the only true ones and right ones, when we're disagreeing with brothers and sisters, we're acting as though we are the only ones who have it all figured out. We're acting as though we're God. (laughs) I think such things ought to weigh heavily on our hearts, ought to weigh heavily on our souls when we have that weighty reminder that there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In fact, let me read that verse to you. It comes out of Ephesians, as Paul likewise is encouraging that church to be reminded of the unity that they can have in the Lord. This is Ephesians chapter 4, notice verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, again, notice this word, beseech you, I beg and implore you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering and forbearance, one an- forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Again, what Paul is there saying is that there is one faith that unites us to one Lord and Savior and Redeemer. Sometimes there's moments in which I think that we're tied to different saviors. We're tied to different authorities. But there is one authority, as Paul here says. There's one body. And we are united by that one spirit. And I think this is why Paul is begging these ladies back in Philippians 4 to remember... To remember who they're united to. Remember who saved them. Remember who plucked them out of darkness and delivered them into his glorious light. Again, he says, I beg you, Odious, and I beg Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. This passage is bookended with that phrase, in the Lord. It appears in verse 1, as I noted, and appears in verse 4. And this true and ultimate identity is the identity that they were to relish in, regardless of how right or wrong they might have thought that the other person was. Their identity wasn't found in their rightness, as we said. It's noted, it is, as Paul is here saying, their identity is found in the Lord, the one who saved them, the one who redeemed them, the one who remade them by his blood. It was given to them. As Paul has already noted in chapter 2, it was given to them by this God who, it says in verse 7, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant And was made in the likeness of men and took their deaths for them. That's where their identity was found. He's reminding the whole church of that. Not just these two ladies. Again, he's pointing them out. But I think he's reminding them all as he's encouraging them to find Christ alone as their joy. Again, if that's the theme of this letter and I do believe that it is, I think it's true. True and right for us to be reminded of it here. The joy that they can have in reconciliation. The joy that they can have in a relationship being restored precisely by what? The union that they have in the shed blood of Jesus. Which writes their names down on the book of life as he notes there in verse 3. I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. The truth that our names are written on that register. When the roll is called up yonder, as the, as the hymn says, the truth that our names are written there by Jesus' own blood, I think allows for conflicts to cease and subside. There are, of course, important matters in the church that ought to be dealt with. Matters, perhaps, of doctrine that can often divide. But there's also matters of just relationship that ought to be eclipsed by this truth alone. That we are tied and united to the same Christ. That our names are written in the same book. Sometimes I think we believe and we relish in how correct we are or how correct we think we are, that we're going to have our own separate rooms in heaven. (laughs) That all of us who think the same way, we're going to have our own room, we're all going to be rejoicing. (laughs) Perhaps you've heard that joke before. and There will be others walking around the hallways and 
They'll say, who are those people who are parting in there? Well, they think that they're the only ones here. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of others in glory that we perhaps think are not as right as we are. (laughs) I think what Paul is advocating here for is a relishing of Christ alone. Despite how correct we think we are or incorrect we think others are. He's advocating that those who are part of the church ought to find their closest and their sincerest fellowship in this unchanging truth. Not that they've figured everything out, but that Christ alone has saved them. Christ alone has remade them and is remaking the world. Think about that redemptive purpose. (laughs) Think about that plan of restoration. That he's reconciling all things to himself. And when he says all things to himself, he does mean all things. All peoples and all of the universe he is remaking by his blood. I think of that verse often when I think of that term redemption. I think of that verse in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about how all of creation is groaning. Groaning for the day when it too can be reconciled. The fracturing of this world by the intrusion of sin wasn't just the fracturing of our relationship with God. It was the fracturing of the entire cosmos with its Lord. And that's what's being restored. Even as us, us, we too are being reconciled with our Father and reconciled with our brothers and sisters. Yes, that is happening at the same time that God is remaking and restoring and reconciling all things to himself. And that great and grand truth then, that our names are written in the book of life. That we who believe in Jesus as the forgiveness of sins means that yes, we can be united to even those whom we disagree with. I've thought about this often, especially in terms of my own marriage. What I mean by that is this. I hail from the state of Florida, at least that's where I lived for several years, And I, growing up, am a very ardent Florida State fan in terms of college athletics. You might think that's strange, but I am. My dad has ingrained that in me, all things Florida State athletics. And so I am very much a fan of that. And my wife, yes, I married into a Miami Hurricanes family, which didn't bode well when I was asking my father-in-law if I could have her daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, As you might imagine, the rivalry between those two is about as cordial as Ohio State and Michigan, or Penn State and Michigan, I should say. But it's interesting to see how my father-in-law and I can enjoy a game together. Enjoy a game as we watch our two teams struggle against each other on the gridiron. I was thinking about that in terms of the unity that we can have that unites us as a church. And no, it's, yes, I know it's kind of silly. But... That unity that I can have with my father-in-law as we are now part of the same family is something that even we who disagree with each other on some such matter, on some such thing, on some such topic, we have a point of agreement that transcends all of that. We have a point of uniting that eclipses any point of disagreement you can come up with. And its name is Jesus. It's the blood of Christ. When Jesus, or when Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always, that transcends those moments when we think we have to get the victory in some such argument. I'm thankful that Paul included these ladies here, included these two women in this letter to the church at Philippi, and as he speaks to them, 
He encourages them to find reconciliation, find agreement in the Lord. And I think it's a truth that speaks to you and me. And I don't think this truth is, means that conflict will never happen. But I do think it means that those conflicts won't become defining. They won't become lasting. They won't become ones that uh, reach into uh, all of the years of our lives and, and grow bitterness. There's one thing that I think dooms brothers and sisters in Christ is the seed of bitterness that can plant and sprout between them. Perhaps tonight you can recall a situation which has sown discord between you and another brother and sister in Christ. Someone you used to relate to. Someone you used to fellowship with. I think Paul's beseeching here. This begging of these two ladies is actually the same type of begging he would give to you and me. The same type of beseeching that he would extend to all of us. Find your agreement in Christ. Remember, your names are written on the rolls of heaven by the red blood ink of Christ alone, which we could say it a little bit more simply, you're on the same team. There's one thing that frustrates me perhaps more than anything else within the church is noting how often we like to shoot at ourselves. Friendly fire within the church is so common we often don't even notice it. As we seek to prove ourselves right over someone else, I think that would frustrate Paul. I think that would make Paul very agitated <laughs> to see how often we like to shoot other, others of our like same faith. Paul here says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in your common fellowship, in your common calling as fellow soldiers, as he writes there, for the gospel, for the glory of God. There's no greater evidence than that. You want to know what I would say is the greatest evidence of the gospel's power? It's the fact that we can be called from all walks of life, from all different backgrounds, from all different occupations and likes and interests. There's so much that could obviously divide us, and yet we can be united in the same auditorium and sing the same praises to the same Lord. That's our calling card to those that are outside of the church. It's the unity that we can share. That's why Paul there noted in chapter 2 that you have the same fellowship in the, of the Spirit. If those things be true, again, as he noted there, chapter 2, verse 1, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy by being like-minded, essentially is what he's saying. And there is. Those things are true and we can be like-minded in the Lord of one accord, of one mind. That's our witness to a world that wants to constantly divide, that wants to constantly be at each other, that wants to constantly pick sides. That if you're not with me, then obviously you're against me. The church is slightly different. Our unity is bound by something much deeper, by something much truer, by something eternal. It's bound by this Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us on the cross that serves as the forgiveness of our sins. That's what makes the church. 
not anything else. Not because we have the same agreement, even on politics or entertainment or sports or what books we like to read or any of those other such things that oftentimes can divide. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That rejoicing that we are called here to have can be explained by only one thing. The grace of Jesus that was shed for us. That exists for us eternally because he exists eternally for us in glory. Our advocate who always is interceding on our behalf. This evening I I encourage you. If you perhaps have uh, some point of acrimony between you and someone else in your life, even perhaps in this church body, reconcile with that believer, with that brother, with that sister, with that sibling, with that long-lost loved one. Because there's a unity that bounds us together and allows us to rejoice with one another. And we're going to be doing that for all of eternity. (laughs) Might as well start practicing now, I suppose. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, I say rejoice. Let us pray.